and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny, broadcasting from high above the Dongcheng District in Beijing. With me online, because we're lazy and it's snowing in Beijing, and the city is a complete mess as people are losing their collective minds over about four millimeters of snow and wintry mix, is David Moser. How you doing, David? Good. Yeah. The snow is the big uh, news item these days. I, I don't know about you, but uh, I've had to learn relearn how to walk because I've fallen down already twice. And at my age, uh, you don't want to fall down too much. So I've, I've now switched to sort of heavy boots. But yeah, I'm, I'm, it snows so, so little in Beijing, I have to get used to it. We'll get to our guest in a moment, but, but I, your, your point brings up a rant in me. Okay. So <laughs> I've lived in my apartment complex now for 12 years. My apartment complex shares a characteristic with apartment complexes, malls, and public spaces throughout the great city of Beijing, which is the materials that they used for the out door landscaping. That is to say, the bricks, the tile, whatever they use to cover the ground so that grass does not grow has almost always been chosen for one of two reasons, either for aesthetic purposes or because somebody's brother-in-law's cousin was on giving a discount that day. Never, ever has it occurred in any part of this planning whether or not this particular material has traction in wet or snowy weather. Right. I, the entire my entire courtyard has been turned into a skating rink, so wonderfully <laughs> without friction that I kid you not, the Montreal Canadiens are thinking of doing practice out there right now. <laughs> I'm just watching like just old ladies, young children, small dogs, large bikes just wiping out left and right, and you know, and they're like, it's slippery out. I'm like, it is, but it doesn't have to be this slippery. Anyway. That's my rant. Rant over. I'm done. Let me get to our guest today, who is fortunately calling in from, uh, I'm hoping, well, warmer or at least less slippery climbs. Uh, Chang Chu is a nonfiction writer covering po- Chinese politics and society. You may have seen his writings in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Foreign Affairs, the LA Review of Books, and just about every other major publication that deals with this part of the world. Born and raised partly in Tokyo, he also occasionally writes about Japan, is fluent in Mandarin and Japanese, and is joining us from the great city of Chengdu. How you doing, Changcho? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Tell us how you got here. It seems like it's been a bit of a journey to get back into the, uh, back into the country. Yeah, it's been a journey. Uh, so I've been here since 2020. Uh, I've been writing uh, and f- working as a freelancer. I joined uh, the Times about a little over a year ago, and um, now I'm I'm back trying to continue a book project that I started in 2020. Uh, and uh, as part of that, you know, I've been reporting uh, on this story about uh, stand-up comedians. Mentioned that to David, and now I'm here. So tell us a little bit more about this project, because uh, David's done some comedy on TV. I've done some comedy, sometimes even intentionally. What tell us a little bit about what is the state of stand-up comedy in China? I think usually when you when I go home and I tell people there's stand-up comedy in China, people usually do it like they think that's they they usually have a kind of an opinion about that along the lines of so you just simply go up and you tell jokes and then you just like walk to the police station. I mean that's that's not really how it works here though, right? No, it isn't. Um, yeah, the the reason why I started researching stand-up was I was interested in looking at new kinds of Western art forms that explode in China, which is a thing that 
we're all very familiar with. And you know, there's been a long pattern of of artistic forms that are extremely popular among the po among the public. And when I was in Shanghai in 2020, it just happened that stand up was the the talk of the town in in Shanghai. There was this really big uh, company that we'll probably get into called Xiaoguo. It was this massive company that backed a bunch of these stand up comedians. They had a they had two really big television shows and they just had a network of comedy clubs that they would show uh, you know they'd have some of their contract comedians perform every day several times a day and it was one of those this new go-to pastime for you know busy uh, middle-class young Chinese you know working in the banking industry or or you know working as a lawyer you know they'd finish work at like eight and they'd go straight to the comedy clubs and, and get a laugh. And so this is stand-up comedy. This is stand-up from the American uh, style of stand-up. But it was transplanted into China. We can go into the history about it a little bit if, if that interests you. But it essentially has been Chineseified. It, it has been adapted to fit Chinese circumstances and also to fit the Chinese political climate. Why don't we start with uh, what uh, something that that we've covered, Jeremiah, have covered in the podcast previously? Because uh, the the fa well, first first of all, you should probably uh, give the audience a little uh, refresher about this uh, scandal when the when the Li Haosher, this comedian, was banned because of the remark he made. But also to to like talk a little bit about how that affected the stand up scene and what we what we felt were perhaps the rep repercussions that you might talk about which is they suddenly began to sort of there was more scrutiny on the music world here the bars the you know musicians doing music foreign musicians especially and uh, I think other places in China and from what you told me the other day it sounds like that was that was all part of this same kind of crackdown not just on stand-up comedy but maybe start by telling the story that you re you told in the uh was it also with Olivia Wong? You you both wrote this story about, um, right. you know, this this uh, this crackdown on this unfortunate comedian. Be before I get there, just really quick primer. Stand up has been, uh, I think, one of the remarkable things about thinking about stand up in the context of China is that it had been a big thing many many years before uh, the incident that I'm going to talk about in a second. So it's it's quite impressive that there were, you know, Chinese young Chinese who could go on stage and basically talk about their life their their lives and some of the problems that they had in their lives uh, and it was very very popular. I mean, it was on national television. It was a major major thing. And what happened this May was that what I would call a, a really a defining moment for the comedy industry. And so this this is a moment that, um, you know, is effectively the beginning of a crackdown. And it's, it's the beginning of a major crackdown on comedy as well as the wider entertainment industry. And it really culminated in this one uh, extremely expensive fine that uh, was leveled at th that was leveled at the company that backed a comedian who performed uh, one unlucky Saturday and Sunday evening in Beijing. Uh, so this guy is, his name is Li Haoshi, and he, uh, his nickname is House, uh, and he was a performer contracted with Xiaoguo, the company that I had mentioned earlier. He was performing a show with, with a number of comedians at an event in Beijing in May. And in it, he made a joke where the, the context of the joke is effectively trying to make fun of the fact that Chinese people love to get dogs, and specifically very, very cute dogs. 
not the kind of you know big mean dogs but these like really cute chihuahuas and and all, all of these cuddly puppies that you see you know on the streets and he, his his e- effort to make that joke was to say that he himself had you know recently come to, to Shanghai now I'm just trying to recreate the joke so he was he you know he had just come to Shanghai and instead of buying you know the normal cute pup dogs he in, ended up buying he ended up just taking two stray dogs out from this mountain and you know this was already kind of funny uh, to the audience the audience was already kind of giggling and so he takes it further and says well you know these two stray dogs you know these wild beasts that I've got from these random mountains they they're not the cute puppies that I you, you know you usually see you know what they reminded me of was and he utters this military slogan that is quite familiar to anyone who is Chinese. It's part of the kind of political language of China. It was a term that was uttered by Xi Jinping in 2013. And in the context of the show, it got a big laugh. But what ended up happening after the show was that a person who went to the performance recorded the joke and put it on Weibo where it effectively exploded. It got, you know, a lot of nationalist attention. The nationalists came after uh, the comedian and asked whether he was intending to insult the military. For context, there, you know, that is an extremely big no-no in China. Uh, for those of you who don't, who aren't familiar with the Chinese political culture, especially in recent years, um, there has been a big government effort to try and avoid speech that has anything to do with the Chinese military. And, and so he had effectively, the debate on Weibo was whether he had crossed the red line. Days later, the, you know, the government had basically issued this $2 million fine on Xiaoguo, the company. Uh, they shut down the company. Um, they prevented the comedian from performing in other venues permanently. That was a crackdown on the comedian and the company. And then there was an enormous wider backlash across the entire industry. So in the ensuing days, Concert venues in Beijing were closed. There were a bunch of music festivals and bands that were performing in other parts of China that were also told that they couldn't perform, sometimes at the very last minute. So this had a huge ripple effect across the country. And in Shanghai, the the state of, of entertainment, as, as I've sort of understood it, is that it hasn't recovered uh, since then. So even months later, you know, the comedy clubs have had some permanent changes that were in place. And we can go maybe a little bit into that if, if you guys are interested. You know, I was talking with somebody the other day from the from the U.S. And they were saying, well, they had heard a little bit about this incident in, in China. And I said, you know, well, it's amazing. China and the U.S., they have the same problems. It's the same thing here. Comedians can't make any jokes. Otherwise, they get canceled. And, you know, and it seems like it's it, our plate, our country's becoming just like communist China. Could you help us out here? You know, how, how do we respond to something like this? Because, again, you know, in this age of like, it's either this or that, it's black or white, it's right or wrong, it's canceled or it's hot. Is it is it different? And how is it different from what's happening sometimes in the States when we have comedians who, you know, say things that they really shouldn't? It's a great question. And it's one of the questions that I've been grappling with a lot. And I think what's you'll be surprised to know that a lot of the Chinese comedians that I talk to also point to America as a kind of comparison and say, well, there's also things that they can't say over there as well. Uh, And so it is a dynamic. I think that it's you're right, Jeremiah, to point out that to, to point to cancel culture, because I think that there are similar 
dynamics at play, but there are very, very different dimensions such as the consequences. Just to start with one similarity, I do think that the digital environment uh, in both countries has uh, made comedians more fearful of audience members that there it, it, it seems like there's you know you can't make two separate algorithms right so social media dynamics are at play in both countries outrage is lifted up an individual person can make a viral tweet or a Weibo post and part of that social media dynamic is what ended up being the demise of Li Haoshi House, the comedian. But of course, if we're talking about cancel culture more broadly, China, I wouldn't say has a cancel culture. I'd say it has a cancel politics. It is not purely a cultural phenomenon in China. It is mostly, you know, many of the comedians that get canceled are being canceled by the state. And insofar as they are being uh, attacked on social media, even the people who are attacking them on social media are calling on the state to censor them. So that's a major difference. When you get canceled in the United States, you're actually appealing to other independent organizations in civil society. And there are many, many independent organizations in civil society. Each of them have their own independent decision-making process. And they can decide for themselves whether they want to cancel that person. And so what I find in the United States is, and, and this is kind of the retort I think that I hear a lot of uh, from the left, is that while you're being canceled in some institutions, but you know, you're not really canceled when you have other institutions that are willing to accept you, you know, because we're, America is a much more diverse, decentralized system of, of power. That is not the case with China, right? So in China, you know, as we saw with the House case, I think it was a really, really important way of sort of distinguishing between what it's like to be canceled in China and what it's like to be canceled in the U.S. Because as a comedian in China, once the state is involved, it is a totalizing experience. House's career is over. It is not over in any, it is not figuratively over. It is, it was done. It was, you know, the government has effectively ended his career. And when he was being, after the fine was made, I mean, all the institutions that w would have let House perform, almost, almost all of them announced that they would no longer let him perform. And the people that, the institutions that didn't announce would not let him perform because they would be too scared to. So it, it, has, it is a total silencing across the entire society. Yeah, this is very interesting that uh, the, the new dynamic, you know, heretofore people were afraid of being shut down by the authorities, uh, the, the, someone, you know, the Gonganju or someone come and shut you down. Now they have to worry about the audience, not just the, the, the officials, which is a, sort of a new dynamic. You mentioned something that was interesting to me that I'd like you to, to talk about is the fact that the comedians don't really know where the lines are drawn. I mean, you never know quite how far you can go because there's never an explicit uh, guidelines that they give the entertainment ind industry, right? And you told me something interesting. You, you said, you know, that very often the, the, the you know, uh, cultural authorities, they want to see the script in advance to sort of approve it, which for, for an American stand-up comedian would be outrageous, of course, but an area of free speech, but that they actually said, we want to see the, your script, and then they can, you know, uh, cut some lines or whatever. And, you, and then you surprised me by saying, actually, the comedians actually liked that or found were very grateful to them because it, it, it gave them, it defined the lines for them. And they felt they could go on stage and doesn't, and the short spoiler, right? You know, what about that? I mean, the fact that, that, in it, that in some sense, as long as they understand where the guidelines are and where the 
the electric wires are or the landmines or whatever uh, you know metaphor you want to use that actually that would be a way they could function as comedians without having to be worried about getting shut down what i've learned that i think was quite surprising among the comedians that i talked to was that oftentimes when i brought up the question of censorship they were oftentimes thinking about it from the perspective of audiences which is not the way that i think i or any typical person in the context of, of the West would think of censorship, which, uh, you know, in China, which is much more top down, you know, it is sort of government mandated. But what the way that they described it as an experience for them is that they're think they're f afraid of speaking slightly, you know, make, making a slight error in, in a joke, make, going too far, making fun of somebody too far and having somebody in the audience uh, report uh, the, the comedian. So there is a system, this is a very different system than in the U.S. So a context that's important here is that in China, any citizen can report somebody for political wrongdoing. There's an entire, very, very well-established system that goes decades far back. It's called the Jubal in Chinese, and it just means a com it's complaint. And what it is, is you effectively have a number that you can dial, and you call uh, the authorities and you basically name the person that you think has you know, done something illegal. And in China, right, you can, be you can do something illegal as in a crime, but you can also commit political crimes as well. And certain utterances are also political crimes uh, in China. Um, you know, there was a recently a, a former journalist was sent to jail for making fun of China's role in the Korean War uh, online. Um, that was uh, invoking a law, right? And so there's a lot of speech acts that you can, uh, that you can actually go to jail for if somebody hears it and, and complains to you. So that is the context that comedians are operating in, is this is, is entirely different from the stand-up culture in America. The other difference that, David, you mentioned is that they all have to go through a screening process. This was the case before House, but it was never really followed. As in many things in China, you don't always have to follow the rules unless you have to follow the rules. But after the House incident, these comedians all have to basically get all of their scripts approved before they go on stage. Now, what this basically means is that this is not stand-up in the American sense. There's no, effectively, there's no crowd work, unless you're an MC, which you can have a little bit of crowd work in the beginning, but if you're, if you're doing a set, you don't have any crowd work, rarely any. And it, it just means that you can't improvise in the way that American comedians do. So that's the, that's the culture. So what, one thing that I learned from my conversations with comedians here is that this culture has become much more toxic in recent years. I think partly because of the internet. I think that there is a much more of a nationalist wave of, of uh, feeling insulted. And, you know, we, we saw this with, with Western brands a, a few years ago. You know, there was an, this, uh, scandals with H&M. And, and we see this, you know, come up, you know, every few months, there's always a scandal. I think recently there was one with like fry rice. There was like a cook that cooked egg fried. I, I don't want to get into that, but. I think you know you, you guys know what I'm talking about. It, it's always happening. And I think part of that volatility has led to comedians conceptualizing their censors as kind of protective figures. That was what I learned that was most shocking to me, was that a lot of the comedians that I talked to felt that these censors were also helping them, allowing them to perform. Because the censors know more than them what can and can't be said, because they're, getting, they're being fed that directly from the government. And so they're the ones who can say, look, you shouldn't say this, you shouldn't say this. 
but also potentially you shouldn't say this thing that might insult that that might anger a nationalist in the audience so that's one kind of dynamic that i think has led to this kind of sense that that, that authorities may be in a protective position but david you also mentioned the other one which is that there just is much more there's a there's just a surfeit of rules and taboos now in china and so comedians are not if if they are the ones who it, it, you need a job to be a, you need a full job in order to really keep track of all the things that you can't say in china nowadays right and and i'm sure that the nationalist culture is also creating more and more and so as a comedian, you know, the way that they've fra framed it to me is that, look, we want to make jokes. Like, we want our job to be to make jokes. And so what they're effectively doing is they're also outsourcing the political correctness to their censors so that they can make the jokes that they want. And then they just, you know, let let if, if they get through, they get through. If they don't, they don't. And if they don't, they know that it's for protection. And if someone complains, they can say, hey, look, I had this approved by the PSB. So, you know, why are you complaining? That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So so a way of looking at this is, in a certain sense, political correctness has these two meanings. In the United States, political correctness is this cultural political correct problem. In China, you have both senses of politics. It's politically incorrect from the standpoint of politics, but it's also nowadays becoming politically sensitive in terms of the cultural uh, mood and, you know, the, you know, yeah. That's actually a good way to think about it, because I think that there's a political correctness in China that's cultural and political. And what's happened in recent years is that the cultural political correctness has gotten ahead sometimes of the political political correctness, if that makes sense. And so authorities sometimes will say, yeah, that's OK. And actually, there's been comedians who said, well, I, you know, authorities like weren't the problem here. Like they thought that my set was great. It was these people in the audience that freaked out when I said, you know, X, Y, Z. So it does feel that the audience has become much more, you know, nationalistic. Part of this also, I will mention, is that stand-up comedy in China is very, is, is very young. It's still, it's several years old. It, it's, I think it, it took off, you know, around 2019. And once it took off, it started to receive a lot more, a lot, a much diverse audience, let's just say. It used to be uh, confined in, you know, cities with young, sort of cosmopolitan, uh, well-educated people who are familiar with the stand-up styles in the U.S. Now that it's become much broader, the audiences are much more diverse. There's people who may be much more nationalistic. And so it's also a product of stand-up, the, the form becoming much more mainstream in China. One of the things I think is great about comedy in general is it's always allowed an outlet for people who want to challenge mainstream structures of power. You know, you think about people like Richard Pryor in the 1970s talking about race in a way that, you know, nobody else was talking about in the 1970s. And really, you know, using that platform of stand-up comedy to be able to address some real social problems, often in a way that was uncomfortable to listen to by a lot of people, but it needed to be uncomfortable. And I think about that in the context of Chinese stand-up comedy because I see so many young women performing stand-up comedy. And I, I find it fascinating that still there's a lot of dudes out there, but there's a lot of young women especially who are using comedy as a way to address some of the you know real issues of gender relations, sexual norms in China. And you know you talked about sort of a toxic culture of nationalism 
one of the things that's been disturbing to me in the last five or six years has, and this is, you know, this is a trend we see around the world, the way sort of toxic nationalism and toxic masculinity tend to go hand in hand, although then they high five later so that nobody thinks they're actually, you know, boyfriend and boyfriend. Is that, how, how, do, how are you seeing this in your own research? Have you talked to a lot of, of women who are doing comedy? What are some of their, uh, how are some of their perceptions of what they're doing differ from either comedians outside of China or some of the male comedians you've talked to? It's a great question. I think that one of the great things to come out of comedy, and, and you know, we've talked about a lot of the negative uh, aspects of, of the comedy boom, partly mainly the crackdowns, uh, but it, it is also, the story is not at all negative, I think. I mean, it, it has actually lifted a lot of, well, so the, the primary value I think that stand-up has given to China is that it has just been a generational outlet for a lot of experiences that young people just cannot find on CCTV or any sort of media that they, you know, China also has the same problem as the US. It's a gerontocracy. It's run by a lot of middle-aged folk. And it's, I also say to my friends that, you know, in China, you know, time is, it's like dog years. You know, the differences are much wider. And so generations are, are so different from, from the parents to the kids, the experience of, you know, one's the experience of the Cultural Revolution, then you have the experience of the China's rise, and now you have the experience of China's plateau. It's, it's a huge gamut of experience, and um, stand-up has really captured a generational mood as well as a, a, a kind of, you know, it, it's a really important moment, I think, for, for, for China's sort of general sort of, yeah, just, just how, how people express themselves in China. I think it's, it's a really uh, new medium for that. And effective one. What, what I wanted to say about about the feminist um, dimension to it is that that has been a major. It's one of the, been the major. Uh, it's one of the major dimensions of stand-up comedy in China, precisely because I think that it is edgy, but it is not politically edgy, and and that is really really important. It's it's this kind of perfect middle ground where it's it, it's not so edgy to become a political problem. But it's edgy in a different way, you know. It's talking about the dynamics of gender relations, which is something that hasn't been said before. And stand-up is, is, as an art form, is great at saying things that you know shouldn't be said or haven't been said. So the 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 authenticity of stand-up is emerging in the feminist dynamics here. A lot of the feminists that are speaking, you know, they're 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 giving really biting critiques of of like the male psyche, and and all of that is is great. And it's not politically threatening uh, in the same way that something like the House incident showed where, you know, mentions of the military are, are just are red lines, apparently, as we've learned. Although I would say that we should also question that very fact that this joke was something that was slanderous to the military. That was, for me, quite surprising when I first covered the story. Before we forget, I, I just want to th this is related to stand up comedy but maybe a little bit more peripherally, but I think it's interesting. The official censorship mechanism, you know, manages pretty well to, to keep certain sensitive topics basically out of the news and out of the information environment. An example being the, the, the Peng Shui scandal, for which I would say, you know, lots of Chinese knew all about it, and then many, many Chinese knew nothing at all about it. So there was a lacuna, like a gap, in, you know, in, in the actual knowledge. The result being that sometimes it's it's, that you don't know where the lines are because there's really a, a lack, a totally ignorance ignorance of certain lines, uh, right? Uh, could you just briefly talk about? Did you call it the Li Jiaqi paradox? 
the lipstick king who <laughs> stumbled it. If I could jump in there too, David, I, I, I want to jump in on that because I think that's a really good point. You know, in a, in a time when a lot of young people aren't really learning about history, particularly controversial times in history, and a lot of the red lines are based on controversial moments in history, you can't really fault comedians who are like, you know, post like zero, like Ling Ling Ho or Joe Ling Ho for not necessarily knowing right. some of them. You talked about the egg fried rice. I mean, how many people over the under the age of 60 remember the whole idea is that that was the dish that Mao's kid was supposedly right. cooking that gave away their position in the Korean War that led to his death. They don't like, know. They don't. I mean, how's, they don't how's, know. How's a kid? How's a twenty-two-year-old stand-up comedian and Chengdu supposed to know that? It's not exactly. It's in their history books. So yeah, it's, it's a good point. I mean, how do you know where the red lines are if you don't know what the red lines are? Well, here's here's a, here's the perfect example of that that Chengdu can can give us. Give us a synopsis of that. Okay, great. So yeah, so the Li Jiaqi paradox comes from uh, Li Jiaqi, who is this really famous uh, influencer live streamer, um, and he I think last year was canceled for a, a moment, he wasn't canceled permanently, he was canceled for like several months, um, for a mishap that happened on one of his live streams where one of his assistants had handed him a cake that was in the shape of a tank. And this was, in, uh, this was June uh, 4th. Um, and so this was right at the Tiananmen uh, anniversary. Um, I don't know how it happened and, and nobody, uh, like among the journalists I know, I don't think they know exactly what happened, but uh, it seems to be the general consensus that it was an accident, that somebody maybe ha had given it to him as a joke, but it wasn't intentional. And so once uh, Li Jiaxi was canceled, it, there was this kind of idea that, as, as Jeremiah, you've sort of already hinted at, there's, there's this paradox that's going on as the younger generation uh, grows up in China where the government's censorship f for decades has become so successful that the new generation no longer knows that certain things are taboo and they will just walk on them without knowing exactly where the line lines are. And it's interesting because that's kind of a premise of censorship that you don't really realize is that in order to be a good, in order to avoid or in order to be an upstanding citizen of China, you have to know the, the sensitive points in China and to avoid it. It's not good enough to just avoid it. You have to know what they are to, to avoid them, obviously. And so we're, we have a generation now where they don't even know what it is that they need to avoid. And, and, and so the paradox is that, you know, once the government cracks down necessarily on that conduct, they're actually bringing a new generation up to speed on the political events that they did not want them to know. And so that's the interesting thing about the paradox. And to bring it back to the, to the comedian uh, case, you know, I think what the Li Jiaqi paradox uh, illustrates is that it's just one of the many examples of how difficult it is for performers and you know, celebrities or any public figure in China to keep track of what can and can't be said in this country. It's just not rationally you know, a legitimate thing to expect of, of one citizen. And so that's also partly the reason why the, you know, lower level sensors that they work with on the ground, they tend to be in a, almost a collaborative relationship with a lot of these comedians uh, in a way that's very mm -hmm. counterintuitive to, you know, just your impression of what censorship is. Before we go, Chang uh, Che, I want to ask you a little bit more about the book that you're writing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what kind of research you're doing, how you're structuring the book, and, and are you collecting interviews? How are you getting the information for a book like this? I know, you know, doing this kind of research on contemporary China, 
even for an experienced journalist like yourself, can be challenging. So I was kind of curious, you'd talk us a little, a little bit about the process, if you, if you don't mind. The process is a great question. Uh, I wish I could get some advice. <laughs> I mean, the, the truth is, I think I'm not entirely, I haven't figured it out, uh, to be honest. I have a through line. Just to give some context, I studied political theory uh, for my uh, master's degree. Um, and so I, I, my background is in political philosophy. And so one of the things that I'm really interested in is this revival of socialism. Uh, and I, I find that to be a really fascinating topic and, and how the, the revival of socialism in China is, is running up against new modern exigencies like the internet and cancel culture and all of these things. So, you know, this is not Soviet era communi- uh, this is not Soviet era communism or socialism. But it's borrowing ideas from the past and bringing it into the present into a really, really different context. Comedy was one of the topics that I was interested in because it it had the dynamics of performers who have similar experiences as as those who, you know, writers and artists in, you know, Eastern European countries decades ago. They have similar experiences of censorship, but they're also grappling with very, very different kinds of technological mediums. And, um, and so that's the kind of through line that I'm interested in following. And so I have, I have some ideas of sort of general topics that, that follow that theme, but I'm really just kind of going one at a time and seeing, once, once I get to a sort of critical mass, I'm hoping that I can kind of collate them into a book about modern socialism in China. Can I ask one one last question? It very could be very short and definitive. They've cracked down on the on on Toko show and these comedy shows. And the party we know is very sort of rather prudish. They're 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 not in sync with uh, or they're not exactly approving of of domains like like comedy, which can be, you know, dangerously subversive if you don't watch you don't you know control them. So do do you think that they've that that stand-up comedy is dead, or that if when they revive it, it will be such a lifeless shadow of what it what it could be that it, you might it might as well be dead. I don't think it's dead, but in some ways, you're asking the million-dollar question, which is what will stand-up be like now after the crackdowns? And to be honest, I'm not entirely sure. My guess is that it will survive in some form, as one comedian sort of explained to me, um, you know, stand-up is gonna have to survive because part of the goal of the government is to channel creativity towards a more productive aspect or aesthetic or art, right? And so they don't want to destroy artistic creativity, they want to harness it. And what will likely happen is that stand-up comedy will start to grow more and more uh, aligned with, you know, socialist political values. So, uh, you know, that could be, you know, making fun of the U.S., for example, or, <laughs> you know, there, there could be certain, you know, dynamics that, that are at play that, that we don't see now. Uh, and and in, so, in some ways, that is an extremely depressing thing for, I think, a lot of comedians who had relied on comedy as a kind of way to vent struggles. But, but I also think that, you know, a lot of comedy is still happening in clubs in, in Shanghai. And even though the scrutiny is very tight now, um, there, you know, as we know with China, things change very quickly. There's also moments of relaxation. Comedians are still able to communicate some things. And uh, as I mentioned, actually, one with you, David, there, comedy is a good form to make some subtle jokes about politics uh, and still get away with it. 
you know, you can you can use a lot of sarcasm and a lot of these sort of mediums that comedians are really good at to hint at political topics. That is partly the medium strength, and so I think it will survive. And I think that comedians will just get more and more clever at using it to uh, express what they want to express. Yeah, I, I feel like the attempts to harness comedy in the services or, or harness underground art forms or art forms that are expressions of resistance to political endeavors never works really well. I mean, the two things I can think about are one, the constant attempts by American conservatives to create their own daily show and realize that punching down is just not funny ever. And then you have, on the other hand, you have, and you're in Sichuan right now, you know, as, as popular as some of the, uh, especially Sichuanese, but other hip hop stars are with their nationalist rap videos, they have a very specific and narrow audience that has yet to seem to break the pop culture barrier outside of China. And I think, you know, I think as China become, as the Chinese government is kind of always wondering like, why, why don't we have any soft power? Why are the Koreans so popular everywhere? And then, by the way, we're going to make sure that this comedian never tells a joke again, you know, without quite realizing that there may, in fact, if you throw that out there, be a connection between these two things. <laughs> we'll have to see. I like the way you also refer to a gerontocracy as, as like we're being led by middle-aged people. I'm like, how how young is this kid? He thinks, he thinks Joe Biden is middle-aged? What, he thinks the guy's going to live to 180? <laughs> There's nothing middle-aged about it. I, I'm not even middle-aged. Well, Changsha, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Enjoy the rest of your time in Chengdu. And we hope to have you on again. It, so is the book, is this a book that you're working on? A book that's coming out? I, I, where are we right now? And what are, what are the projects that you're... Other than obviously having some time in, Ch in Chengdu, what are some of the projects you're working on right now that we should be looking out for? Right now, just uh, it's, it, the book is early stages. Uh, I'm writing a series of long form essays right now. Um, one of them is going to be the comedy essay. I might be doing some profiles in the coming uh, few months. And uh, yeah, so just look out for uh, my byline uh, in publications. Well, be sure to put a link to some of your more recent articles and also a link to your Twitter feed as well in our show notes. People want to keep up with your adventures here in China and your reporting. David, thank you very much for zooming in or whatever this platform is with that we're using. And we'll be sure to talk to all of you again, probably sometime after the holidays when we're taping this on December 14th. We're taking a little bit of break to celebrate uh, the various festivals that are coming up in the next few weeks. And we'll talk to you again in January. Thank you all very much. Cue the drums.